You can tell things about people by what they do. And the same is true of God. You can tell things about God by what he has done. And this morning we're up to Luke 23, the death of Jesus, God's clearest actions, the moment in history where God is the most transparent. And what we can tell about God from the cross is that God is for us, not against us, for us. So much so that whatever's happening in your life at any moment, you can know for sure that God is for you. We're to understand our whole lives from the perspective of the death of Christ. Now, like last week, we're just going to simply read most of uh, the chapter and we're going to let Luke tell us what the death of Jesus means. And when we get to something significant, we'll pause and just think through what Luke's telling us about the meaning of Jesus' death. So we're going to begin in verse 8, chapter 23 and verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priest and the teacher of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. Now the picture we're given here is of vultures circling. You have the Jewish leaders baying for Jesus' blood. You have the Roman rulers, Pilate and Herod, becoming friends over the issue of Jesus. Jewish and Gentile rulers all conspiring together to see Jesus come to ruin. And it's all very significant. In Luke's second book about Jesus, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, we're told what all this means. And the verses are on the outline in your bulletin in the middle there. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles Peter and John, they've just been released from prison. They go back to their friends and they hold a prayer meeting, as you do. And in their prayer, they quote Psalm 2, a psalm by King David. And Psalm 2 is all about God's anointed king being mocked by the nations, but then rising up to smash his enemies. So I'll read from Acts 4.24. They prayed, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. See what it's telling us? As Jesus is on trial with Herod and Pilate, and the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, what we're seeing is the nations conspiring against the Lord's anointed, against Jesus Christ. Which raises huge expectations for us as we read the rest of Luke 23. For the second half of Psalm 2 is all about the Christ smashing his enemies like pieces of pottery. So as we keep reading Luke 23, we're expecting a quick uh, defeat to Christ's enemies. So let's see what happens. We're up to verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. 
Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty, therefore I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Well, there was no quick defeat of Christ's enemies, were there? Instead, he was surrendered to their will. And the overwhelming sense of these verses is that everything is just so unfair. Unfair for Jesus and unfair for Barabbas. Nobody gets what they deserve. Jesus is innocent. Pilate says so three times. And yet he's handed over to be killed. And Barabbas, well, he's guilty of murder and he's set free. And we shouldn't let the familiarity of this story rob us of just how wrong this is. Nobody likes it when guilty people walk free. I mean, how do you feel, or how did you feel, about Christopher Scase hiding on some island to dodge um, the fraud charges that were against him? Runs off to Majorca, becomes a citizen of Dominica to avoid extradition, and all with success. He never had to face criminal charges. Creditors couldn't trace most of the missing $700 million. He walked away scot-free. Most of Australia hated him for it, at least going by the media coverage it got. That's the way it seems. Nobody likes it when guilty people walk free. Whether it's to do with money or murder, nobody likes it when guilty people walk free. But what we have here in Barabbas and Jesus is even worse. Not only is the guilty one walking free, but innocent Jesus is shoved in his place to get the punishment that he deserves. This is outrageous. But it's not a new idea for us, is it? Do you remember last week when we looked at Jesus being the suffering servant, the one who died not for his sin, but for the sin of his people? So the outrage we feel at Barabbas as he walks away a free man is the outrage we should feel at ourselves if Christ swapped places with us when he died. Because Barabbas is a picture of every Christian. Every Christian is just like Barabbas, guilty, yes, but set free because Jesus swapped places with us in his death. The death of Christ was an unfair swap, unfair for Christ and unfair for us. But with us, it's a flipped around unfair, isn't it? Because we don't get what we deserve, but what we deserve is punishment. So it's a good thing to not get what we deserve. It's a wonderful thing that God prefers to treat us with mercy rather than fairness. Jesus swapped places with guilty people like you and like me to pay for our sins, sparing us from what we deserve. Because God prefers to treat people with mercy rather than fairness. Although one day, if we don't seek refuge in Jesus, God will dish out fairness in his judgment. One day God will treat people as their sins deserve. We're up to verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him, and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. 
Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Now these words are astonishing. There's Jesus having been beaten and flogged to the point of being unable to carry his cross. He's making his way to the place which for obvious reasons is called the skull. Women are wailing for him. And so he turns to them and says, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. In other words, I'd rather be me than you. Now how can he say that? The horror of what has happened to him. How can he say that anything could be worse than what he's going through and what he's about to go through? Was well, because Jesus knows of another day that is coming. A day of God's wrath and judgment against the wickedness of this world. And to describe that day, Jesus quotes the Old Testament prophet Hosea when he spoke of the day of judgment. On that day, people will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. In other words, a horrible death would be better than having to face the terror of that day. And to give us a glimpse at the terror of the coming judgment, Jesus says, For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? In other words, look at how I'm being treated, and I'm innocent. What's it going to be like on the day of judgment for the guilty? It'll be worse than this. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Now those are chilling words, especially if you're here this morning unprepared for the day of judgment. If you're here and you haven't asked Jesus to swap places with you, we're reading of what God allowed to happen to Jesus and he's innocent. What do you think will happen to you? Do you want to front up on that judgment day having to receive what your sins deserve? Many of us have been shocked by the horror of Jesus' death in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Yet Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Judgment day will be even worse than this. So to warn us of the coming danger, let's keep reading of Jesus' humiliation and suffering. We're up to verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, the Chosen One. Soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults saying, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, did you notice that in all the drama, everyone keeps calling Jesus the king or the Christ. Four times he's mocked. Look at you, Jesus. Some king you are, dying on a cross. What sort of king are you? Can't even save yourself, let alone others. And yet in amongst all the shouting and the mocking of the rulers and the soldiers and the criminal, Luke wants us to know that in his death, Jesus is the Christ. 
Luke wants us to know that the mockers are right, even though they don't know it. Luke notes two things they did to Jesus as he hung there to die that tell us that he is the Christ. First, Jesus' clothes are divided up by lot. And second, he's also offered vinegar. There's two things that the Old Testament tells us will happen to the Christ, to God's King. There are some Psalms about God's Christ and two of them speak of his clothes being divided up and him being offered vinegar. Both references from the Psalms, again, they're on your bulletin, on your outline. First one's from Psalm 22 and it says, Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Just like the soldiers did with Jesus' clothes. The second reference is from Psalm 69 and it says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Again, just like the soldiers did to Jesus. And so despite appearances... As he dies on a cross, Jesus is the Christ. In fact, we would say now that in his appalling appearance, Jesus is exactly like the Christ figure of the Old Testament because he suffered at the hands of his enemies. And as much as his enemies don't think so, as the Christ, Jesus came to save. Not himself, but others. And he would save them through death. Verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man's done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now on the face of it, this scene borders on the ridiculous. Both the criminal and Jesus seem delusional. First, why would the criminal ask a crucified man for a share in his kingdom? It's like asking a man who's strapped into an electric chair about to die if he could share in his kingdom. What kingdom exactly is he going to offer? And second, how can this crucified man promise the criminal life in the kingdom? They're crucified men for crying out loud. The pools of blood on the ground below them belong to them. Breathing is becoming unbearable for them and they use some of their last breaths to talk about kings and kingdoms. And yet these words are true. It might look crazy, but this conversation is about real things, not fantasy. As we've seen, Jesus is no ordinary person and his death was no ordinary death. In his suffering and death, he is the suffering servant dying on behalf of sinners, taking their place for them, enduring the wrath of God for them. And we've also seen that in his suffering and death, Jesus is the Christ. So he will be the conquering king who will smash his enemies on behalf of his people, and we'll see more of that next week. So it is in his death that Jesus is the suffering servant and the Christ. It is in his death that his kingdom will come, which is why he can say to the criminal... Today you'll be with me in paradise because that day he died. Remember the first criminal insulting Jesus by saying, save yourself and us? Well, little did he realise he was asking Jesus to do something Jesus could not do. Jesus could not save himself 
and save others. It was either one or the other. And thankfully, he chose the others. He chose not to save himself in order to save others. And so he could say to the second criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise, because on that day he died. Jesus did bear the sin of many. Jesus did endure the wrath of God so that others could enjoy his kingdom, enjoy his paradise. All you have to do is ask. Have you asked? Because Jesus doesn't want you to bear your sin yourself on the judgment day. Christ Jesus does not want you to face his wrath at your sin that day. He wants to remember you in his kingdom. He wants you to share in his paradise. And you can. Like the criminal. All you have to do is ask. We started off this morning thinking about how you can tell things about people by their actions. So what can we tell about God in the death of Jesus? Because first and foremost, the death of Christ is about God. It's not about us. So what do we learn about God? Well, lots of things. For starters, Jesus' death marks him out to be the Christ. He is the king of the world. The cross also shows us that God prefers to treat us with mercy rather than fairness. He prefers to not give us what our sins deserve. In mercy, he would even swap places with us in death under the judgment of the Father. And so the cross tells us of the God who doesn't want to send anyone to hell. He wants to rescue people from judgment, to join him in his kingdom in paradise. From Luke 23, this is our God. So as you go about the next week that's ahead of you, how will you think of God? For you or against you? What about when life gets you down and nothing seems to go right? You can never seem to get life under control. There's always more to do. You always feel like you're behind. Is God for you or against you? Or when your life savings go bust and you can't afford your kids' health or kids' education? Or when your job puts incredible pressure on you to compromise your faith? Is God for you or against you? What about when you get terminally ill? Or you face a relationship breakdown? Or when the kids start to go off the rails? What about when that close friend or family member dies in an accident? Is God for you or against you? Or when you struggle to sleep at night out of worry for people? You desperately want people to survive whatever crisis it is. You want people to stay Christian in the face of enormous difficulties. You just can't see how what God's doing makes any sense. Life for you and for those close to you is confusing. Where is God in all of this? What are you going to think? Is God for you or against you? Well, this is what Luke would want us to know. Here's some of what we've thought about from Luke this morning. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for murder and surrendered Jesus to their will. Do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves. We are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. If God's for us, 
Who could be against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Luke's account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his majesty, that he is the king and suffering servant. Thank you that he would even swap places with guilty people like us. Thank you that he would die for us. Father, help us to appreciate him all the more every day. We ask that whatever we are facing in life, we would always know that you are for us. Help us to look to the cross and understand that you are for us more than we possibly dare to imagine. Father, we pray for your son to return soon. Amen.